The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Living Well with Ann Beal. Our show is a health show, a lifestyle show, and an empowerment show rolled into one. Get ready to hear some stories of success, healthy living tips, and suggestions to get motivated and live your best life. Now, here is your host, Ann Beal. Welcome. This is Ann Beal, and I have my partner, Dr. Jim Slaughter, here joining us today. Hey, everybody. And we bring you a wonderful surprise today in honor of Memorial Day on Monday. And we have a a man, Jeff Meek, who has a wonderful job that he does and a wonderful gift that he does for all the veterans. And we want you to hear from him and hear all about what he's done. And welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Jeff, if you just tell us all about what you do, if you could just do a kind of a quick intro, how would you describe what you do for the veterans of this nation? Well, um, as a way to say thank you for your service, other than just lip service, Several years ago, I decided to record their stories for the veteran and their family. And I started doing that back with VHS tape uh, several years ago (laughs) and recording them um, and giving them a copy. And uh, shortly after that, the idea came upon me to contact the local newspaper to see if they might be interested in stories about these guys that I was meeting and speaking with because several of them had participated in things you read about in history books. I mean, walking across Omaha Beach on D-Day, etc. And uh, so then um, in January of 07, I started doing a column for the local newspaper, the Hot Springs Village Voice newspaper. And so I started as an unpaid columnist with a word limit, and it's a weekly newspaper. And we did it just once a month. And as soon as those stories started showing up in the newspaper, the phone started ringing. I bet. Because it is a retirement community, and there's a lot of elderly gentlemen here. And it just took off. And uh, then we started doing it more frequently, and they dropped the word limit. And then I became a staff writer and now managing editor of the newspaper. And I had no idea any of that was going to happen. But that's how it all started. So how long did all that span of time from the time you, your son, because I know you had said that your son, um, when I read your book, had been, um, he was going Mm -hmm. into the military, he enlisted, Mm -hmm. and you became interested in learning more about your father. Right. Was it your father or your grandfather? My father. Your father. Um, the, The very beginning of it all began in 1996 when our son joined the United States Marine Corps. September of 96, and that prompted my wife, Jean, and I to want to know more about what our fathers did in World War II. So we got their papers and their medals and, and that kind of stuff, and um, I bought a book, actually, I bought a book for Jean to read, uh, Citizen Soldiers by uh, Professor Ambrose, Stephen Ambrose, 
and I thought she might be interested in reading it because it was about the time and place that her father was in in World War II. Well, after it sat there for a couple of months and she didn't read it, I thought, you know what? I'll read it. And Are you saying she didn't she didn't want to read the book that you got her? I think she's just, <laughs> I'm just, all I'm saying is I don't think it was a priority. But um, and I don't know how to describe it. It just consumed me. I could not believe what these guys experienced, the horror of it all. And one book led to another and I was meeting more veterans and all this was in Illinois. Um, and I was an athletic director at our school district and I started doing programs around Memorial Day and Veterans Day. And I, as an educator, I was very embarrassed on how little our school district taught about the sacrifice of our veterans. Mm -hmm. And I would do theme-based programs, all school programs, 850 kids sitting there and um, I would bring in veterans like three D-Day veterans or three Pearl Harbor veterans and I would actually teach about the event the day before the assembly and you could hear a pin drop when these guys would talk. We would take questions from the student body and I knew they were really interested when the very first one we did, if I remember right, the kids, as I dismissed the students to go back to their classrooms, these kids almost ran out of the bleachers over to the table to get these men's autograph. That is so cool. I and, think that's so cool. Yeah. That is neat. And then, you know, school board members started showing up and the newspapers showed up and we did several of those. And I did nine stories just the last couple of years in Illinois. And then when we moved down here into Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, in June of 05, I really had no idea what, what was going to happen. You know, I, I moved down here to fish and catch largemouth bass. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I figured, you know, I'm going to bump into a World War II veteran every once in a while. And, you know, I might interview him. Well, the first one I did here in Hot Springs Village was with a member of the 11th Panzer Division. He was a German. Wow. That's cool. And, um. That, yeah, that was pretty interesting. And then my wife, who's very active in the Daughters of the American Revolution, Revolution uh, a Kansa chapter here in the village, um, they were looking for someone to affiliate with the Veterans History Project, which is located at the Library of Congress in D.C. And to do that, you had to do 25 interviews a year. Well, I had done, I think, nine in four years. And so I found out to do that, you have to do 25 a year. And I thought, my goodness, what have you signed me up for? <laughs> Little did I know how it would change my life. Wow. See what spouses can do for you. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> now, <laughs> you um, do have a book out that you put together of the 200 and, let me guess, 46 interviews? That you took. 286 as of today. <laughs> I darn. 286, yeah, yes. You took 75, mm -hmm. and um, you published the book they answered the call mm -hmm. um and this one is mainly world war ii veterans it's all world war ii veterans, all world war II 75 veterans. stories and you've also done many other veterans do you think that your interviews have spanned all the wars i do yes i started world war ii was my if, if i can use the word expertise my area of expertise and that coupled with the fact that these guys were you know, the getting up there in age, 
that was my priority. That's what I knew. And I was a little hesitant to go beyond that because I, by doing these interviews, I learned the significance of knowing your subject. Um, I, I can distinctly remember the very first one I did. He was talking about his unit moving, 45th Infantry Division. And he said, we came up to some river. We, we needed to cross a river. And he was struggling to think of the river. And I said, was it the Muse? That's it. And his eyes just lit up. And I've seen that many times um, doing these interviews. It means a lot to them that you know what the heck you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Where the, you know, Gene and I have traveled to Europe and been to many uh, World War II related sites. And when you can tell these veterans that, you know, I've been at Elsinborn Ridge. And it, it just means a lot to them. Um, and it helps you to, to conduct more of an intelligent interview as well so mm-hmm. so when did you start um when your son was deciding to enlist how old were you then uh let's see 46 now had you re- you hadn't retired from teaching yet no so how long had you been teaching uh at that time yes um, if you let's can see. 21 years. Wow. So were you a history teacher? No, I was a gym teacher, an athletic director, and boys basketball coach. But all my colleagues would um, tease me that I was a history professor trapped in a gymnasium. (laughs) (laughs) Well, gosh, that is so cool. So you took the history and all about the wars and the, the things that you learned about the veterans and started having them come and speak and mm-hmm. everything that you taught these kids, it was as a gym teacher. That's right. Uh, and that gave me access uh, when I would combine with my fellow gym teachers, that gave me access to every student in the school on a daily basis. Yes. So the day before we would have this program, I would say to my fellow PE teachers, Hey guys, how'd you like the day off tomorrow? What do you mean? Take attendance and send your kids to my class. And I'd send them in the bleachers and I'd teach about Pearl Harbor, or I would teach about D-Day in Normandy, or I would teach about Nagasaki, mm. whatever it was that we were going to have uh, covered by the veteran guests the next day. And then the program at school would just start with a bit of an introduction, and we'd show a four- or five-minute video. And I had a friend with a clipboard, and the kids could come down out of the stands, and they would go to him with their questions, and he was kind of my filter. So you didn't ask something stupid like, how many people did you kill or something like that? He was my filter, and then he'd give me the questions we felt were appropriate. And then I would ask, we'd, we'd have anywhere from two to five veterans at a table. Hmm. And it was mesmerizing. I mean, those kids, you like, I think I said, you could hear a pin drop. And uh, it just snowballed into something pretty popular. And uh, we did it once the first year and then, like I say, twice thereafter around Memorial Day and Veterans Day before we would dismiss. And there ended up being articles in the newspaper about it because the press would come and the school board members would come. And it helped that my boss at that time was a retired Marine. So, Yeah, that would help. (laughs) And uh, so that helped. You would think that um, because you taught the day before about the events of the war, that the kids knew a lot more and were a lot more informed before they came. Yes. Because, Jim, you've gone to Veterans Day and they've had you stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim was in the Air Force. Right. And he stood up 
and they just have you stand up and they, they thank you for your service and you sit down. They ask us what unit we were with and just something very brief like that. Yeah. And you, you're recognized. And it, honestly, it feel it feels really, really good to have people acknowledge your service in the military and, um, and and just to to know a little bit about that and yeah. And can you see the difference in the kids' interests if a teacher if they had taken the time to inform the kids and it was a certain? So did you invite veterans that are all from the same war? Yes, it's, from the same event. Same event. Pearl Harbor, D Day, mm-hmm. etc. That is so incredible that you did that. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone else doing that. Yeah. Maybe they have. Have you? No. No. Um, me you know, I was just so fortunate to uh, be able to get to know more than one person from um, an event. And when one program would get over, it would be, you know, many months till the next one. But I immediately put up my radar screen for, okay, who can I get? Because I want to do this again. Who can I get? Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I was running some errands uh, for Gene. It was around Christmas. And I heard this name, Merritt. King um, over the radio station, a Chicago radio station, and they talked about him being a D-Day veteran and losing a nephew in the 9-11 attack, and that he uh, lived in Geneva, Illinois, which was 40 minutes from my house, and I thought, man, I got to find this guy, Mm. and I did, and and we just immediately clicked. He, He just died two years ago, but every time we'd go to Illinois... I would make time to go out see him. Yeah, for lunch. And I don't know, it was like almost like a father son thing. I mean, we just really, really clicked. And right away, that first time, he said, You know, you got to meet some, some more of the guys. And I said, Yeah. And he said, We've got a bunch of D Day veterans here in the area. And we get together for breakfast once a month. And we call ourselves the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. That's I, uh, great. Their next meeting was going to be back when I, when I was going to be back in school because we were on Christmas break, and so I took a personal day and I met these guys uh, at a restaurant. We all had breakfast together, and it was just—I mean—they just put their arms around me. I mm-hmm. mean, they just welcomed me in, and um, that was my first three interviews. Um, first one was with Jim Taff, who was with the Second Ranger Battalion who climbed the cliffs at Point Du Hawk. 225 rangers started, I think it was 75 that lived, and Jim is one of them that lived. And then I did another fella who um, was in, in D-Day, uh, had all kinds of pictures of Buchenwald, mm-hmm. concentration camp. And then I, Merritt was the third one I did. And it just, you know, I, I was further immersed and impressed and smitten, I guess. I don't know for sure what the word is, but I had to do something other than just say thank you. And that's the idea I came up with was to do something that they would have forever. And now um, all 286 interviews have also been sent to the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where they're being preserved. Now, do they have other people doing that? Are you the only one or they have lots of people around the U.S. doing that and maybe even around the world and sending them into the Library of Congress? Yes. Um, I'm by no means the only one. I may be the, one of the few that's this addicted 
<laughs> but um, no, they get they get submissions from a lot of folks. Um, in fact, when we send in an interview, it's typically five months before it will show up on their website because they have to process them. And um, so they get them from, I'm not sure, Anne, if they get them from all over the world, but I know they get them from all over the U.S. Because I would think that a lot of veterans live in different places in the sure. world as well. Sure. And so so on the website, you can actually go to mm-hmm. the Library of Congress and you can access these yes. um, I, I interviews? Don't have, yeah, I don't have uh, the address in front of me, but it's the Veterans History Project. I think it's vhp.gov. GOV, something like that. You, you can Google Veterans History Project and you'll definitely find it. And then you can search by the veteran's name. You can search by the contributor's name. You can search by unit, if I remember right. And you can see who's been interviewed. And a percentage, a small percentage of them have actually been digitized and you can watch them. And I think they do a good job. They don't just do the, the combat soldier or the combat veteran, um, you know, they'll do somebody who maybe was a crew chief at an airfield in the U.S. and never left the U.S. Right. So they, they, I feel like they do a good job of giving a smattering of all aspects of, of service and of all the wars, really. I the, think focus, that's a- the focus was pretty much at uh, World War II at, at first because, you know, they're dying at such a rapid rate. Right. Because they would be in their 90s, oh, yeah. 100s now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though they were so young. I they mean, were. a lot of the stories in your book, I mean, they just 17, 18, barely out of high school. I know. you. I mean, I have interviewed guys who were 19 years old who were quartermaster guys. And part of that was being a helmsman. And here's a 19-year-old kid, you know, maybe 18 months, two years out of high school, steering a battleship. Right. I mean, it was just it was just amazing what they did at their age. And they're so humble about it. And they, they do not like to be called heroes. And I can't tell you how many times I've interviewed a veteran who at first did not want to do the interview. Oh, it, it's very typically, I didn't do anything interesting. And my standard response to that is do you read my column? And they will say, oh, I never miss it. And I said, well, I need, I need you to know that almost every one of those guys in that column said the same thing as you did. I didn't do anything interesting. But you found it interesting, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And, and mm-hmm. most of them will interview, but I've come across a dozen or so over the last um, many years who it's just too painful. Yeah. And you have to respect that, too. Mm. I thought you made a good point a minute ago. You know, everyone who um, wears a uniform during wartime contributes to the war effort. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it could be a, like you mentioned, a quartermaster, supply sure. uh, personnel, you, someone who's a recruiter, mm-hmm. uh, a, a stenographer, yeah. a typist, someone who does paperwork contributes to the war effort, yeah. and is in every sense of the word, a soldier. Yeah, what many of them don't realize is that only one in seven or eight or nine, I'm not sure anymore, uh, during World War II actually served in combat. By far, the majority never saw combat. Well, Jim, you never seen you never saw combat. I never saw combat. I trained combat air crews at a uh, SAC base, Strategic Air Command, in uh, 
in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, Carswell Air Force Base. And so I was connected with people on flight line, air crews, and that kind of thing. So it was very interesting work to me. It was uh, work that that I had some experience and some education in doing and, and all that. But, no, I wasn't in, in combat myself, but I, I sure and was. most were not. Yeah. Yeah, and your dad, his dad didn't see combat. He right. actually was, was he an accountant in the military? What did he do in the military? He, he actually was, uh, he was assigned to a recruiting station in Oklahoma City. He was, a, he was in the Navy and uh, was ready to ship out. And somebody grabbed him and said, uh, we understand you have some office kinds of skills, boy. We need you over here. You're going, you're not going anywhere. You're staying put. And all that training. Yeah, right. And all of his buddies, guys he had trained with, went on board ship. And what war was that? It was World War II. That's what I thought. There's a fellow, you say that, it reminds me of a fellow who was trained in the infantry. And he was walking across Omaha Beach, like, I don't know. A few weeks after the invasion and he's going across the beach and this guy walks up to him and he said what's your name soldier and he tells him and he said come with me he said where am i going he said you're going to be my typist <laughs> and he had been trained for infantry and thought he was headed off to uh you know combat and all that and right wow and stuff like that does happen it, yes. uh, it does happen it is yeah amazing yeah <clears throat> so i would think that if it's only one out of nine then it might be hard to f- these stories the 75 that you put in here about um people that were actually in combat there were a lot that weren't in combat then. well most of them in the book um you know i don't have the index in front of me but most of them that uh were in the book were in combat um it was difficult you know i didn't want to make the book too big um it was difficult to decide which ones to put in and, and which ones to leave out. And I thought, you know, you can always do a second one. Um, but um, my wife and I talked about that pretty much at length, and we just decided to put in the 75 that we thought the, were the best. And, and um, you know, many of the stories in the book, um, these guys told their story for the very first time. I, you know, there are many times where I would get contacted by a relative you know, a brother, a son, even wives would tell me, you know, I've been married to him for 45 years. He never told me that. I will never forget an interview I did in Illinois with an Iwo Jima veteran, Chai Koval. And I am very much against doing the interview with other people in the room because of the possibility of distraction. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of a friend of a friend kind of deal. And his daughter wanted to be in the room. And I said, Carol, I said, I'm sorry, just experience tells me that's just not a good idea. She said, Jeff, I promise I will not make a sound and I will sit out of sight over in the corner. And I said, okay, well, we did this interview with this Marine who was shot on D plus 10. Actually, he was shot coming across the beach and the bullet hit him. He he was a BAR man, which is a big, you know, heavy. Browning automatic, yeah. He had an extra clip in his breast pocket. And he was shot, and he hit that clip. Whoa. Knocked him down, and he got up and kept going. Yeah. Well, on D plus 10, he, he was wounded and evacuated. Um, and at the end of the interviews, I almost always say something like, um, well, is, is there anything you'd like to say 
before we conclude our interview. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that maybe I didn't bring up? And I'll never forget Mr. Coble saying, no. And just as I was about to say, you know, thank you for interviewing me, he said, but, and he started talking about the home front. And he says, I can't quote him. And he's not in the book because all these are from fellows that I did down here. Here's this guy who spent a whole life as an iron worker. I mean, this is a man's man. And he's crying like a five-year-old when he's talking about what the home front did for the, the man in uniform to win the war. And I, he said, you know, it'll never be like that again. And a moment or so after that, we concluded the interview and his, you know, I shut the camera up and his daughter comes over and she's crying like crazy. We all ended up crying and mm-hmm. she put her arms around me. She said, Jeff, I learned things about my dad today. I never knew. And I've heard that so many times. And I just, I'm so grateful that they've opened up to me so their family and the world can know what they went through because they went through hell. They did. And, and, you know, it's it's so true that families don't know. Because you interviewed my stepfather about the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And he said things in that interview that none of the family had ever heard before. And honestly, up until maybe five years ago, six years ago, he didn't ever talk about the war. Ever. And he was injured pretty badly in the war. And most he was injured all very his, badly. Yes. Suffered and for a long time. All his... Um, all his friends died. And for him, that was a wonderful thing that you did. And for the family to give them that that um, insight into what actually happened when he got so injured mm-hmm. and what actually happened. Because for most of these men to talk about that has taken them a very long time. And you help bring that out and preserve it for the families. Mm-hmm. So we we are going to take a break, um, and we just appreciate you guys listening in for Memorial Day to give you this special insight into um, what Jeff Meek does for a living now. He he stays busy in every way because he runs a newspaper and writes for – do you run the newspaper as well? I'm managing editor. <laughs> managing editor. <laughs> Sorry, whoever runs that newspaper. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about the stories of these men and more about what Jeff does um, that's really made people so interested when he talks about his readers. Uh, and we'll tell you more about him after the break. So stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life and I had to start again. With just my children and my wife I thank my lucky stars To be living here today Cause the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you, 
and defend her still today Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA From the lakes of Minnesota To the hills of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas From sea to shining sea From Detroit down to Houston And New York to L.A. Well, it's bright in every American heart And it's time we stand and say An American, where at least I know I'm free, and I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today, cause there ain't no doubt I love this land, God bless the USA. Most married men experience frustration because there are things they want from their wives but don't know how to get them. Nothing seems to work. Desires are unfulfilled, fantasies unrealized, and relationships become stagnant. Men are desperate today for a richer, deeper, more satisfying, and intimate marriage. Dr. Jim Slaughter teaches men how to have the passionate, fulfilling marriage they've always wanted. Call 817-991-4964 or email jslaughterphd at yahoo.com to begin transforming your marriage into what you want it to be. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit VoiceAmerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Get motivated. Hear about success stories and positive encouragement. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Living Well with Ann Beal. We'd love to hear from you with comments and questions about the show. Please send us an email to ablivingwell at gmail.com. That's ablivingwell at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. And I have my partner, Dr. Jim Slaughter, here. And Jim and I um, are bringing you this Memorial Day special with our guest, Jeff Meek. He is a writer and author. He vet, he interviews veterans and records their stories, their oral histories from the war, their war experience um, for the Veterans History Project located at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And Jim and I want to thank you, Jeff, for this service you give these veterans. And we just thank you for being on today. Glad to be here and glad to have you on. It's a, it, it's a, it's a service, uh, to everybody. I mean, you know, it's, uh, a lot of people, as you were saying earlier, you know, uh, especially in, in generations after the second world war, don't know a lot about all that. And so when people read these stories or hear these stories, uh, they're informed about an inc- incredibly important, a crucial part of their own history. Can I talk about that just for a second? Yes, please. Back when I was teaching, there was a time when they needed someone to teach summer school mm-hmm. and nobody would sign up. And so I went to the principal and I said, I'll do it if you'll let me teach history. Now I'm a PE teacher, as I said, I don't have a history degree. And so he was pretty reluctant to, to do that. But, you know, school ended and no one else signed up or volunteered. And I said, OK, Jeff, you're on. So for, I think it was 10 weeks, three or four days a week, I taught World War II to these 13, 14, 15 kids who had failed whatever class. Uh, you know, it wasn't just history. And it was confirmed for me. They knew nothing. They knew absolutely nothing. They didn't know who the Allies were. They didn't know who the Axis powers were. They didn't know anything. And... Um, Within five classes, I knew I had them because mm-hmm. they would come to school in the morning and say, Mr. Meek, I called my grandpa. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. And That's so they, um, they learned a lot. I had a great time doing it. And um, I think they were very thankful for that class. I had several of those kids tell me that, you know, that's the best history class I've ever had. I'll bet. And, you know, and I think um, to teach history, you have to do more than dates. You have to make it personal. You right. have to talk about people. Well, I, I had a history teacher like that that was so passionate. 
um, and it, but it was Russian history as a college. And then in ninth grade, I have a civ- had a civics teacher, um, Mr. Hodnett, that was so passionate. Mm. And I think with your passion of uh, the, the, the information that you learned and the amount of time you invested in studying about World War II, I'm, I'm so glad they let you teach on it. Was that the whole summer, that whole yeah. class uh-huh. you taught about World War II? Yep. I must say, I think probably it's worse today, kids' knowledge of any of the wars. History in general. I mean, you guys may have seen, like, um, the Jay Leno show when they'll go out on the sidewalk and they'll say, who was the first president of the United States? And people can't answer it correctly. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen that on TV? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What, What an affront to... To those who've served and those who not only served in uniform but in our government and I mean I just can't believe our schools have neglected this to the point that people don't know who the first president of our country was? No. And I don't even think they know what the Revolutionary War was about. And so part of it is that they everything that they teach now is like in the last hundred years, maybe that far back. Um it, the kids don't learn anything past that, like the 1950s, maybe 40s. I don't even think they get to the 40s most of the time. I don't. I, I you know, I'm a counselor and a life coach, and I, I see teenagers all the time, and they will tell me they don't learn anything about yeah. that. And the books that they read are not historical books, and they're very, very dark, and a lot of suicide and death and all that, but nothing about true people having to die or giving their life in, a, yeah. in service of their country. Unfortunately, many times it's just about dates. You know, December 7th, 1941 was right. Pearl Harbor, and then in, in uh, May of 1942 we attacked this mm-hmm. island and blah, 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 and they don't get into the personal stuff, which is the gripping part. Well, and if, now that we're talking about that, Memorial Day's coming up. Do you think mm-hmm. that they know what Memorial Day is? What it really is? I don't think a lot of people kids or adults give it a second thought to, to many it's a day to invite friends over and grill something yeah on the grill okay. and yes um you know living in this retirement community that is you know absolutely loaded with veterans i still even see a little bit of that here we many times are invited to something on memorial day and um there may not be any mention of it and the other end of that spectrum is the event will start with a prayer for veterans. So it's kind of anywhere and everywhere, I think, in terms of what does Memorial Day really mean. What does it mean to you, Jeff? Well, it's um, it's a day set aside to um, you know, remember the lost and the living. And um, I think of the saying that um, as long as a man is remembered, he never dies. Mm-hmm. And Memorial Day is just a very, very important day to remind everyone the sacrifices made, not just by the soldiers, but by their families. I mean, imagine seeing the the Western Union guy walk up to the door mm-hmm. in World War II, you know, 409,000 dead and, you know, raising rabbits for meat and, um, you know, not being able to buy shoes and cars and and sugar and coffee and all the things that they sacrificed uh, you know just America in general not just those in uniform which reminds me of something um, I have a collection of 
World War II area, era Stars and Stripes Army newspaper. Oh, you do? Wow. I do. And if you've ever read through those, of course, there's a lot of battle action and so on and so forth, but there's also baseball scores and other things. And, you know, this is when all the rationing was going on, and you couldn't get a tire, and you couldn't get this, and you couldn't get that. And I'll never forget this one that um, the writers for Stars and Stripes found, I think, in a West Coast newspaper. And it was an advertisement that this gentleman had put in the newspaper. And he said, uh, gentleman looking for attractive young lady with four good tires. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's great. Anyway, That's great. Yeah, it's, it's a day, um, you know, we take it for granted. Most people do. And, and, you know, and I realize that I have a real bent for this and it, it's a passion of mine and, and um, get a little oversensitive to the fact that more people don't care about it. Well, I think that the difference is when Jim and I were reading your book last night and we were reading different stories about, um, you know, the Army, Air Force people or the Navy men mm-hmm. that were serving or all these different stories. One of the things that really stood out to me was all these boys, they were basically boys Young, in high yeah. school or coming out of high school, when they heard about Pearl Harbor being bombed on the news or by other students, they immediately felt this deep passion to want to enlist and go serve their country and, you know, um, get into the war. And so you can see the difference in the nation back then when someone harmed America, what they wanted to do and their passion, how they felt and their, um, what do you call it? Their patriotism. Yes. Which is hard to see today. It really is. Um, that's another kind of bugaboo of mine. Um, you know, when you think about the current wars, which are also unpopular, just like Vietnam was unpopular, you don't see the protests. You don't see any of the unrest from like we saw with the Vietnam War. Um, and I think there's some reasons for that. You know, nowadays, think about this. We've been at war for over a decade. How has it, and how has it affected you personally? It hasn't. It hasn't. We are so disconnected from today's soldier or airman or whatever. Um, it has so little impact on us. And fortunately, there is a bit of a movement now to bring that to the forefront with um, people like Andrew Basevich and others have written some terrific books on that. And he proposes some ways to get connected, but they'd be pretty unpopular. Right. <laughs> and, and two of them are bring the draft back, get everybody involved. You know, that would, that would make a connection. You know, back during World War II, I think it was single-digit uh, percentage of Americans paid taxes. And by the end of the war, almost 50% of Americans paid taxes, if I remember right. Mm. And, you know, we raised taxes to pay for a war. We don't do that now. Now we just print money. Think about this. If President Obama, or whoever the president was, I don't mean to single him out, but if a president went on the air and said, we're raising your tax rates 15%, until the war's over, 
you think you'd pay a little more attention to what's going on in Washington and us getting involved in foreign countries and wars? Sure. And that's what they did back then. They, yes, it they was. did that. Yeah. And I mean, that that in a draft, and I'm not necessarily advocating either, you know, I'm not saying definitely that that's the answer and would reconnect us, but I think it would get us more connected. Mm-hmm. I think that taxes now are just a given. It's not for anything purposeful. You know, it's we don't connect what our taxes are used for anymore. Yeah. In fact, we see less and less any visible sign of what our taxes are actually used for. We just print so money. It, so it just disconnects. <laughs> but I, I do think that the stories, and I know you're, you're wanting to share one today, and we would like you to do that. Um, and I want the listeners to be able to hear some of them. So you're going to share about Bill Reynolds. Yes. I'm going to talk just for a couple minutes, read uh, to you from my book. Uh, Mr. Bill Reynolds, who was in the United States Navy, uh, he was aboard the USS Saratoga, an aircraft carrier, stationed at Iwo Jima. The ship set off for the Marshall Islands, which were still under Japanese control. The Saratoga provided support for invasions at Kwajalein and Inuitak. Then the ship joined Task Force 58 in January 1945 and headed for Iwo Jima to provide air support for the February 19th invasion. On February 21, the carrier was in closer to Iwo Jima than normal, so their planes would not have as far to travel and thus save gasoline, which was getting a short supply. Suddenly, the general quarters alarm was sounded, and Reynolds went to his station to help load the Quad 40, which is a gun. The gun crew began firing at an incoming kamikaze. Although they managed to hit the plane, the enemy fighter kept coming and slammed into the ship just below his gun position. Quote, The next thing I knew, I was in the water. From that point, it was sheer survival, end quote, Reynolds said. Several men in the water were badly injured. Those that could provide help did so as much as possible. Reynolds received back injuries, which later resulted in him having to have eight vertebrae fused together. I'll never forget asking him this next part. What was it like in the water? And and Reynolds said, Reynolds talked about what it was like being in the water. His response was gripping. Quote, It was okay until it started started getting dark, and then the sharks moved in on us. I don't know how many people the sharks got, but there were a number of them that went down screaming. They, the sharks, come and pass by you to smell you, I guess. I was very, very fortunate, end quote, responded Reynolds. He spent time in a hospital and later rejoined the ship. Once he could walk, he was granted to leave back home. Reynolds said, quote, I can tell you this. I did not discuss this with any of my folks when I got back home. It was too close to me. I never told them anything about it, end quote. Wow. I mean, the story's one thing, but when you sit eight feet away from somebody when it's when they're telling it, it's uh, well, it sure tripped my trigger to keep doing their stories for sure. So, what was it about him when he was sharing that? I mean, when someone's sharing such a, a painful memory like that, what do you do? I try to stay completely composed and I try before the interview starts I don't try I tell them before the interview starts you know talk about what you're comfortable talking about you know I'm not pushy uh, you know I want to hear it all if you're willing to tell it but 
um, I want to talk about what you're comfortable talking about. And there are many times when guys like Bill will tell me the real rough stuff, and there are some times uh, when guys don't. And I guess, you know, you just try to sit there and stay composed. Somehow, maybe just with your face, I don't know, you'd be supportive. Um, You sometimes have very long pauses while they're collecting themselves. It's very emotional at times. Because I would think that story with the sharks in the water, that would have been very hard to move on from. You know, in the in the story, it, you know, he moves on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would think that it would be hard for them to stay in the middle of that emotion very long. Yeah, it, it is. There's been a couple interviews I've done that, I mean, we've talked for you know, 10, 20 minutes about just some unbelievable things. I just can't imagine experiencing and seeing what some of these guys have seen. Um, But sometimes also, I don't know how, but there'll be a good moment that they'll think of. And the mood changes. And they'll remember something stupid that a buddy said or something, you know, and it'll get more like lighthearted and um, but sometimes we have to turn the camera off. And I also tell that to them before we start. You know, if you need a chance to use the restroom or something becomes emotional, we'll turn the camera off and we'll start again when you're ready. And that happens. You know what? I don't think I realized, did you, that you video them as well, not just their voices. Yeah, they're all on, all 286 have been filmed and uh, are at, um, they're either in my house waiting, mailing, or, um, Probably 280 of them are already there, and there's about six in the other room. We wait till we get about a half a dozen, and then we mail them off. Well, but yeah, I, they're all recorded. They're all on DVD. And the great thing about his book, They Answered the Call, he not only shares their story. I mean, he, he basically shares what they tell you mm-hmm. as though they're telling it. And um, The only thing I add is maybe a little details about a unit. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and how many days they were in combat, or just some, you know, like if somebody's on, like in tomorrow's newspaper, there'll be a, a waste gunner on a B 17. And I tell his story, but I interject into it um, information about the airplane and the gun. But, um, and what newspaper is that that you write for? That's the Hot Springs Village Voice. It's a, it's a weekly here in Arkansas. Yes, Hot Springs Village in Arkansas. We've been talking about the retirement community here. How many people live in this? Community. Um, I would say close to fourteen thousand. It's a very big community. It's, it's twenty. It's twenty six thousand acres of woods, as you know. Yes, yeah. it's beautiful. National and, forest. Yes, yeah. National yeah. forest. And, and in this this book, they answered the call. All of these veterans actually moved to Hot Springs Village, mm-hmm. and all, that's all but two. All but two. Yeah, there's two stories in there of guys I, I had to interview, and include them. It was just really, really good stories that. Did. They didn't live here. One lived in Little Rock, and one visited his brother here. Who had a, both of them had amazing stories. But you go on to say about their life after they returned from the war, mm-hmm. and and some of these guys, kids, men, um, because they certainly are men when they get back, and and some you know you, they talk about getting back to the states or getting back home, and they are twenty. 21 when they returned back to their home 
um, when they left like at 18. Yeah. And uh, it changed their life forever. Forever. And, but it goes on and tells about what they did. And they usually all went on to work for a company of some kind and retired 20 years, 25 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, They'd use the GI Bill to go to school to plan a career, and, and then or, and some didn't. You know, They would just go into a particular field. But uh, I thought that was interesting, too. You know, what happened to these people when they got back? Yes, and they got married, and they had children. Mm-hmm. It was just a very positive way. It just made you feel good when you heard about the the toughness they went through in the war. Um, and so it was just very enlightening. Now, one of the things that I would like to mention is my stepfather was in the Korean War. He was, him and his whole um, battalion, what would you call it? Unit. Unit. Okay. Yeah. Um, were injured. Uh, all of them killed, except for him. And he was injured badly. But he never got his Purple Heart. And a lot of these men returning from these wars, and, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. You mentioned that there's, after World War II, how many soldiers were returning all at the same time. You were saying mm-hmm. millions. Millions, yeah. Millions. And so they, didn't, they just didn't process out their medals. And so there was a man in the village, and, and you, Jeff, too, but Surrey, Schaefer. Schaefer? Mm-hmm. Schaefer. Schaefer. He worked diligently to get the medal for my stepfather and have it presented here in the village. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many other men he did that for. I know he did it for a couple others, and he also did it for a Iraqi female veteran. Yes. Um, and, you know, Suri founded the um, local chapter of the Military Order of the Purple Heart. And Surrey was just a pit bull. I mean, he'd grab <laughs> onto a, a politician or someone, <laughs> and he would not let go until it happened. That was, that was really wonderful. The, the interesting thing about that, though, which comes along with the Purple Heart, is all these benefits that mm-hmm. they got, um, the health care and the money and everything. And to think that all those years these men hadn't been getting that. Yeah, you know, that's, that's interesting you bring that up, Ann. Gene and I, for the last four years, on March 30th, we host a uh, luncheon. Uh, and March 30th, it's gaining momentum throughout the country. We hold a Welcome Home Vietnam Veterans Day luncheon. And we have had county service officers come in and talk about the benefits that you can receive, that you have earned. Some of them don't even know about it. I, I'm, I won't say the name, but there is one fellow who now gets hundreds of dollars a month that he never got before. He didn't know he was entitled to it. So how would they, what is a way now for someone out there that that's happened to, to them, how could they begin trying to find out about those? Well, many counties have what's called veteran service officers. Um, you know, I have the contact information for here locally, which isn't going to do any good for your folks listening in. But um, you can contact the uh, you know, local VA office, a hospital or whatever, and um, see if the county has one. Um, How would they reach you? Um, well, do I give a phone number? You or can get whatever you feel, email, whatever you feel comfortable with. Phone? Well, I'll give a phone number, I guess, because that's easier to understand than a bunch of letters. Yes. Um, <laughs> I can be reached at 501-922-5387. And um, I can get you in touch with the right place to find records and um, that kind of thing. But 
um, you know, I don't have information countrywide on how to find a veteran service officer. Well, and that will help greatly because we do want to do whatever we can for these veterans. And we just thank you so much, Jeff, for everything you've done and for being on the show today. It is a great honor for Memorial Day to do something for these veterans, and it just sounds like such a wonderful thing. You also have another book, The Veterans Vault. I have another column. I have column. Two, two columns in the newspaper. They Answered the Call is just for World War II. And then, I don't know, maybe nine months after that, uh, we started another one called The Veterans Vault. That is for every other uh, uh, war and, and uh, time of service. So we just want to say thank you for that. And to the Hot Springs Village Voice. newspaper, mm-hmm. Voice, Hot Springs Village Voice. And thank you, Dr. Slaughter, for being on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Just, Thanks for uh, inviting me. It's been very wonderful. We brought this to you today from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. We are actually in Jeff Meek's home. And we just thank you, and um, we ask you to honor the veterans coming up on Monday on Memorial Day. And um, if you want to reach us, you can let us know what you think of this on ablivingwell at gmail.com. And um, if you'd like to talk to me or coach or counsel with me, just call Life Solutions, 817-232-1363. And until next week, live well. Thank you again for joining us. Living Well with Ann Beal airs live every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait to see you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.